Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Before we start this week's show, I wanted to issue an apology on behalf of myself and the entire Little Gold Men team. We forgot about Mona Lisa Smile. Many of you let us know about our error. It is the movie that Maggie Gyllenhaal and Kirsten Dunst had made together. We apologize for the oversight. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here with an all-star throwback lineup. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And with Mike Hogan. Hey, guys. Yay. Later in the show, we're going to talk about TIFF, and we're going to talk about the Emmys, and we've also got an interview that I did with Alicia Vikander about Blue Bayou, but first, we want to say farewell to Joanna. Uh... Mike, we're always happy to have you back, uh, but you're back for a really special, semi-somber, but also celebratory occasion, because we are all gathered back here, the original Little Goldman Quartet, because this is Joanna's last episode. Joanna, we want to send you off in some style. I don't want to make you give a speech, but do you, can you, can you, and will you tell people what's next for you? Um... I, I guess I'll say, so I'm leaving. The only reason I would ever leave my beloved Via family and my beloved little gold men family, um, is, is just for an opportunity. I couldn't say no to, to go podcast elsewhere. So that is something that I'm doing. Um, I'm, it's sad. It's very sad. I love, I love you guys so much. Um, it's so funny that you call it. The, I'm laughing to keep from crying. It's funny that you call it the quartet because obviously like it was an original little girl men trio. I was thinking about this and you guys brought me on to fill in for Katie when she was on maternity leave for, for your oldest kiddo, right? Katie? Yeah. Like, for the one who is uh, now at kindergarten, which will give you a sense of how wow. long we've been doing this. <laughs> okay. It was supposed to be temporary. And then you guys were like, stay, uh, which was one of the nicest things anyone has ever said to me stay on little gold men and I've had so much fun since I'm so glad we got to do one of those early morning Oscar podcast groggy Oscar podcasts all together post post party um back when in we February had 2020 yeah with like like the last moment you yeah, it was like the podcast. last thing that happened before the world <laughs> ended was we got together IRL um <laughs> but I will be I was just thinking about this I was like how will I know everything that's going on if I'm not a little gold man anymore and I was like oh I'll just listen obsessively every <laughs> week, like most people there you go so I'll be listening every week absolutely I I did go back on the archives because I don't I don't don't know if you were on the podcast before you started filling in for me I don't 
remember if you were, but the first one I found where you were like officially like joining in as a guest host was you guys were discussing uh, the Ghostbusters remake with all women, which everyone was very chill about. No one got mad about and wow. uh, Swiss Army Man, which Joanna loved and Richard hated. I loved that as a uh, <laughs> as how you and started that's why off I tenure. finally years later asked Joanna to leave the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You've been holding on to that my terrible Swiss Army Man take. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, Joanna, like, I, I, we have a whole show to get to. We're going to talk about Toronto. We're going to talk about the Emmys. And uh, Joanna, you and I get to predict the Emmys. But I wanted to give you credit for how much you have taught me about how to host and guide a podcast oh, like this. No. Like, obviously, we started this without you. I think a lot of people think that this kind of chat show podcast is really easy because you just talk into a microphone. And I think anyone who has done it knows that it's really not, that you have to put some work into guiding a conversation, into preparing. I mean, especially in Still Watching Man, the heroic amount of prep work that you do. So you have uh, you have contributed so much to the shape of the show and how it exists. And it, it would not be the same without you. And I'm really grateful uh, for everything that you've done for it and that you will leave us in such good hands when you go. What a thing to say. I mean, uh, folks at home should know that like as soon as Mike Hogan popped in as a surprise to me, and it's 7 a.m. here in California, <laughs> I genuinely did start crying. So um, no. so um, yeah, this, this show means a lot to me. You people mean a lot to me. So... Thank you. I mean, having Joanna come in to fill in for Katie is like having um, Mickey Mantle come in for Joe DiMaggio. It's like, uh, <laughs> that's a really, not to whatever, date myself to my grandfather's era. But, I was going to say, how old are you, Mike? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it has really been so much fun working with, with all of you guys. I, I was just thinking about how at the beginning of my second tour with Vanity Fair, um, which is very ongoing, um, the three of you were at the very top of my list of people that I wanted to hire. And so it's been so much fun to, to see you guys thrive and, you know, do all kinds of amazing things and build this incredible audience on Little Gold Men and on our site and in our magazine. And it's funny, you know, it, it, it's really been so cool to see how connected people feel to all of you and to Vanity Fair and to, you know, through this show. So, um, so I, I mean, I, I am not the kind of person who gets upset when people leave because I feel like it's for the greater glory of all of us. If you go on to do something even cooler and bigger than what you're doing right now. Um, so, you know, I just want to say thank you for spending these years with us and, and yeah, teaching us a lot of stuff and, um, helping introduce so many people who just love Joanna Robinson podcaster to this show and to Vanity Fair. I know that there are a lot of people who subscribe to Vanity Fair through Joanna. Um, so thank you so much. And I, we, we wish you the best and we will very much be listening to all the stuff that you do. No, Mike, I'm <laughs> this is awful. Um, you, you have to put up with it, Joanna. We weren't going to let you go without a tribute. So just oh suffer God. through it. Oh, and so can I can I can I make my little speech now? So Joanna, yeah. I just wanted to ask you, why do you like Swiss Army Man? <laughs> <laughs> it's the fart jokes, Richard. What can I say? <laughs> but no, as you said, Mike, my my Twitter feed, uh, my my replies are pretty much a weekly testament to how many fans Joanna has out there and how many of those fans she's brought, you know, to this podcast and still watching. So it's it's quite a thing, and I can't wait to see uh, her her lead her merry band of people <laughs> into the future with her. I know a ton of people are going to, like, and not that I brought, I don't subscribe to the fact that I brought anyone to Little Gold Men, but, but if I did, I know that they'll stay <laughs> because, like, did. because, you know, it's, um, I, what I've loved seeing is um, folks who weren't, something that's so fun about this show that you guys do so well is make 
this sort of impenetrable awards punditry, um, really fun and accessible. Um, Richard forever making me laugh um, with a with a joke set up. I like oh, that's my favorite thing. I've said this before and still watching. You can tell when Richard's about to tell a joke. You just don't know what it's going to be. <laughs> so you just like get excited in advance for whatever really funny thing he's about to say. Um, so you guys make it so fun. I had a Netflix. Uh, sorry to call out the actual uh, company, but I had a Netflix publicist uh, approach me at events once and asked me if she could hug me because she was like, I consider you all friends because I go for walks with you every week. And I just like, listen to you guys. And that's, that's something, that's a vibe you guys have created on the show that existed before I filled in for Katie on maternity leave, which is just sort of like, here are your friends who, yeah, go to these film vessels and go to these parties, but are here to talk to you about it in a really approachable way way. That's why I think this show is so, so good. Well, it's a real testament that when you're forced to do something or else you're, you'll be fired and you do it at um, 2x speed, you still want to hug the people who are involved. So I think that that's, that's a lovely tribute. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm realizing that this is probably harder on the listeners than it is on us. Because, like, Joanna, I'm going to keep talking to you probably daily and ask you to tell me about, you know, TV shows and everything else. But people are not going to get to listen to us talk to each other, which there is a that is a real relationship. And I feel really grateful for, like, to, from hearing from people who listen to it like that and just getting that feedback. So I don't know. Maybe we have to plan a reunion special, housewife style, at some point in the future to give people that, that hit. I mean, I would – that would – bring me joy for sure. Um, and, and speaking of parasocial relationships, Joanna, do you want to announce that you and Olivia Munn are together now? <laughs> and we're expecting. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, the other thing about, you know, what Mike said in terms of when we all got hired is I, I, I do think of it that way. There's this sort of like, I, I love all of our new hires at VF. Like we constantly bring in all these great people. It's amazing. But there is this like, core that was here at the start of a new era of Vanity Fair. And I think about you guys, you know, as like the core via family um, that is, has been through so much. We, we recently sent our uh, beloved uh, photo team member Kiara off to New Adventures and that sort of broke my heart because I was like, no, Kiara, what, what we, she's been here for. Some, so that's how she I, how I me. feel yeah. about this, about this core of folks. There's like, I think a few people who predate us, but not that many. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a thing. Who would have ever guessed when we started that we would be the veterans? I certainly did not think that that would ever come to pass. Um, well, Joanna, we still have a whole show to do, as I yeah. said, um, but as a the part of your formal farewell, since you won't be around for the rest of this Oscar season, uh, Joanna, tell us what's going to win best picture and best actress right now. <laughs> oh, you left the easy one off the list because everyone knows who's going to win Best Actor because Richard's already made his prediction. You, well, I mean, you have it on your sticky note, right? I need you to, to, to take, at least leave us with a photo of your sticky note about I Richard did, and Will Smith. I did already write a sticky note about, about <laughs> Richard Lawson predicting Will Smith will win an Oscar. Um, okay. I'm going to... Okay. Uh, Kristen Stewart. Let's... What Should we make that happen? Sure. sure. Okay. We have the power, right? All right. Kristen Stewart, and then oh, best picture, Dune. Oh, Dune. Sorry. Dune. No, <laughs> I don't know. I should have pulled up what the prediction you made back in March. That would have been smart. Oh, it's embarrassing. Don't ever look at it. Don't ever look at it. <laughs> Swiss Army Knife Two. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I know you're gonna play it. Um, uh, you know when, or maybe you'll play it when I'm gone. But please, no, just... no, no, you'll be wiped from the record. Like, okay, in good, the good, 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 Like you great. never existed. It never after happened. this week. Um, <laughs> 
Um, I don't know, Richard. Do you have any hints for me? What's going to win Best Picture? No, no, no. I, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I can't. I can't vote for West Side Story, but like maybe I will. Um, I think you should vote for West Side Story. You know what? I'm gonna Dune. It's it's a bad prediction, but it's more on brand for me. So I'll I'll, I'll put my heart with a sci-fi. So Dune and Kristen Stewart. That's what I'll say. I took I true, took Mike's true joke to advice. Your nature. And to my heart. So, I yeah. love it. Now I feel like a genius. <laughs> yeah, Mike, I don't think we didn't make, like you make a prediction idiot. for um, for this year's uh, spring edition of predictions either. So you want to go go hard on Dune and we'll check back in in, a, in what, eight months? Let's check back in next week. I'll, let me think about it. <laughs> we'll give a, you time to change I mean, prediction. Something I will say. So we, we found out recently that Disney's quote unquote experiment of releasing Shang-Chi in theaters only paid off for them. And then they announced that the rest of their theatrical this year will be in theaters only. And so West Side Story is going to be in theaters only, which gives it makes maybe makes it feel more like a real movie than a lot of these other hybrid movies have felt. Um, Yeah, that's true. Maybe. Um, All right. Well, I think we can send Mike on his way. Mike, we'll have you back on soon uh, to talk about maybe talk about Dune. (laughs) But thank you for joining us to to send Joanna off. It wouldn't have been the same without you. Thanks for making me cry, Mike. Yeah. Thank you for all of the laughs and the rest of it over the years. So we're, we're, we're excited for you, even Thank though you. you've broken our hearts and crushed our <laughs> dreams. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, as promised, we want to talk about the Toronto Film Festival because, uh, Richard, you're in Toronto. You were one of, I mean, not, now you know, like how much press really was in Toronto for yeah. this year's film festival, given all the uh, the travel restrictions? You know, it was more than I thought it was going to be. Like, I would say I kind of somewhat consistently ran into colleagues at screenings or just out on, you know, King Street or whatever. Um, but then when you actually would go into the press screenings, I mean, they were minus maybe Dear Evan Hansen's was kind of big. I saw Belfast this week, and that that was pretty full. I mean, full considering that they, you know, everyone's spaced apart and everything like that. But the, otherwise, they were pretty quiet. You know, I think that my first screening, which was the Japanese film Drive My Car that won a screenplay award at Cannes, there were maybe 10 people there. I mean, wow. that's also a three-hour movie about Chekhov, so, like, I kind of get it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, like, a big deal. Like, people were excited. It would normally yeah, be much, much busier. It, it was very buzzy at Cannes, so I kind of thought maybe people would have checked it out. But, you know, the problem is that first Thursday at the festival always is a lot of Cannes ketchup, and so people had to make some tough choices between Drive My Car and, you know, a couple other uh, big titles. Well, and also you were you were limited to only a certain number of tickets, so you couldn't you couldn't do the right. thing that I always love doing at TIFF, where it's like, okay, I've got three hours. Should I just watch this I thing know. that's playing right now? It's like a magic of that festival in particular that that couldn't happen this year. 
I bitterly miss that. And but I, I will. But it's it's a funny thing because you know, the Lord giveth and taketh away. Like I missed not being able to improvise, but I also love being able to get to the theaters five minutes before the screening because I yeah. knew I had a guaranteed seat. You know, yeah. Um, but those guaranteed seats. So this is funny. So I went. We had we had to log on at ten a.m. last Tuesday to book our twelve press tickets. You know, um, and I was like in my typical fashion, very panicked about like, oh, I'm, everything's going to be sold out. And so I logged on exactly at 10 a.m. and I booked my seats and I got all my tickets and I was feeling really good. And then I kind of started looking at the assigned seats. And because TIFF went through Ticketmaster, something in the Ticketmaster algorithms or whatever thinks that we're going to a concert. So closest to the stage is best. <laughs> Almost every single one of my tickets was the very front row. Oh my. Oh <laughs> and no. so I had to like constantly ask ushers if I could move. But then halfway through the, the weekend, the ushers started saying no one can move because it, it was for contact tracing purposes. They, you know, they wanted to uh-huh. know where everyone was sitting, um, which I is, you know, smart and responsible. But like, my neck is in pain. <laughs> I'll say that. Like I didn't. I never planned to see Belfast like that close. <laughs> but Jamie Dornan is so beautiful. Isn't it worth getting like the full full effect? That helped. Yes, that was good. I mean, by going so you know, Tiff had a digital platform set up again this year, and last year I'm sure we talked about it. You know, I watched Nomadland in my basement because uh, there was a very very limited in person Tiff. You can go to Canada if you're American. Um, and this year, that same digital platform is there with its same uh, you know Apple app that plays great but has no search function, so you just have to scroll through all these pictures to figure out what you want to watch, which is not the best. But a lot of stuff was not on there. Belfast was not on there last night, and Soho wasn't. Drive My Car wasn't. Uh, the Humans, which you reviewed, Richard. Um, so by going to Tiff, you really got to see a bunch of the big deal titles um, that yeah. I'm kind of still itching to get the chance to see. And like, I don't, I don't want to complain about it because I get that it's complicated and a lot of studios want people to see their movies on a big screen. And like, I never thought Dune was going to be on there, but it has been, it's been a little frustrating being at home and like hoping to have gotten something resembling a real TIFF experience and really just kind of picking up little bits and pieces. Some I've seen some really good stuff, but it hasn't been anything close to the full. My experience. understanding is that the main frustration was the conf- or a major source of frustration was the confusion yes. of like um I expected to have access to this, I don't have access to this and then I heard from some publicists that people, you know, like people were chasing them all weekend understandably for screeners. That just meant that everyone was just sort of like in major as if they aren't already in any given festival, like major rubber, rubber hit the road mode all weekend trying to connect people with screeners, you know, like, cause imagine you're a freelancer and you've promised a review to an outlet yeah. and you can't get access to that and you're in panic mode. So, um, yeah, I mean, once again, I understand that everyone's just like trying to do their best in the pandemic and they're trying to like accommodate all things. I think there just was a, a bigger breakdown of, expectation communication than I've seen in some of these other setups. You know, I, I feel for the TIFF press office because they had to juggle 18,000 things, half of which were on fire, you know, like they, it's, it was a lot of work, but there was a kind of communication breakdown about that very crucial thing, which was, yes, we're going to do the digital screening, you know, platform again, but there should have been a much bigger asterisk that, that said, uh, yeah, but like, you know, here are the tw- 15 huge titles that will not be available. On yeah, that, you know, yeah, I no, think I think that was a... Didn't unpleasant know. surprise. Um, and I think the impact that you're going to see from, you know, we talked about TIFF as launching all this Oscar buzz and the People's Choice Award is this famous, famously huge bellwether. It worked last year with Nomadland. But I think the divided up process of it, like The Humans was one of the titles that was kind of like 
curious about it, hadn't played at Venice or Telluride. Like it was an adaptation of a play. It's a first time director who's, you know, adapting his own play. Like it really felt like it could go either way. And they didn't make it super available for the, before the festival. They didn't provide any links. And then all the reviews come out the other day. And Richard, you're one of the many people who loved it. And so it's got this, it's this big burst of like, oh, wow. But it's only from five or six critics. And the, like that something that could have like really swept people away at Toronto is just going to have this much more muted splash. Yeah, yeah, that's a funny one. I mean, so I don't know that it's necessarily coming out this year. I don't, I don't oh, know if it's, if it's scheduled yet. But anyway, it's an A24 movie adaptation of a you know Pulitzer finalist play, Tony winning play. Um, it, about very, it, it, that's a, just a kind of family during Thanksgiving, but it's a very dark version of that. Um, not because necessarily of what happens to the family, but because sort of what's happening around them. There's lots of creepy noises. It's almost like a horror play and now a horror movie. Um, and I went to the premiere screening of that. So it was a public screening, which meant, you know, pe- you know locals were there and, and, and whatnot. It wasn't just a kind of press and industry thing. And I, they were laughing a lot because there's a lot of funny stuff in it. But um, I don't know what the mood was at the end of the film, which ends hmm. pretty, you know, on a somber note. Um, I don't know if it's like people's choice material. But then again, the pickings are a little slimmer than normal. Uh, I mean, I would have to imagine something like Belfast, Kenneth Branagh's memoir movie. That'll be high up there because it's sentimental but not cloying. It's funny. It's sort of, it's a little bit of a history lesson, or at least it was for me, about what was happening in Belfast in the late 60s. So I, w- I would think that would be there. But I, I'm wondering, you know, we had Chris File write something for us about the Toronto People's Choice Award and, 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 and its, its weight. I wonder what that weight will mean this year, you know, mm-hmm. because it wasn't a full tiff where everyone had, you know, the not the you know the entire breadth of the award season lineup to watch, but but at least you know there's usually most of it, and there I would say there was probably not even a third of it this year. So right, and th- I mean that was my question, Katie. You asked me, and I didn't respond to you, but you're like, is there anything you specifically want to talk about in your last um, <laughs> uh, little Goldman? And like actually, one of the things I want to talk about is is sort of now that you've hit a couple of these festivals, Richard, um, what we're feeling like the shape of this year will be we talked a lot about last year how different of an award season like how certain elements of the usual awards race were missing in terms of like boots on the ground um conversation in lobbies sort of uh you know passive uh, creation of narrative so i'm just wondering like from what you've seen of creation of narrative at telluride at tiff etc um does this feel like it'll this will be more akin to last year or it will be more um more like you know years we've seen before that I think it will be a little bit of both. I know that's kind of a cop-out answer, but um, I I think that, you know, I was talking with some pretty high-level publicist kind of people at Telluride, and we both were, you know, we were all kind of agreeing that, like, I've seen a lot of Best Actor contenders, I've seen a lot of Best Actress, a lot of Best Director, a lot of this, that, that, but I don't know if I've seen a Best Picture. Mm. And that might sound like a sort of silly way to frame things, because what does that even mean? Small things win best picture, huge things win best picture. There's no set pattern, but like, I just don't. I don't feel that oomph, and so I think that in in some ways, like having festivals back, and there are bigger movies, there are more movies, it will feel like a quote unquote normal pre-COVID year. But also, I remember last year, 
kind of always waiting for the next thing, being like, well, yeah, this, these movies were good, but there's this on the horizon or this coming. And I think that we're going to have more of that sensation this year. People are already kind of like wondering about the Paul Thomas Anderson, more, I mean, more than they already were. And West Side Story was a big topic of conversation because you have these, you know, musicals in contention from Cyrano to potentially in the Heights to Tick, Tick, Boom, which I keep, by the way, hearing good things about. Yeah, me, me too. too. Me too. You know, so that's building a nice kind of whisper campaign before most people have even seen it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that that kind of anticipatory, like, maybe the next big thing will be the the one that really, like, locks this award season into into view and, and into the, the shape we want it to be. Um, and maybe that'll happen, or maybe we just have to kind of look at what's already screened and 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 sift through that and and figure out, like, who's going to come out on top. But, yeah, I, I would say that acting-wise, acting, acting wise, um, just this last year was a very stacked acting category, you know, lineup. Um, we're, we're doing well. Um, but Best Picture... I don't know. You know, I thought maybe going to Belfast, I was like, this, you know, it's black and white, it's Roma, but it's Ireland and it's Kenneth Branagh and people love him. And I think it has the el- some elements of that kind of um, weight, but uh, not not enough to really uh, take it all the way. Uh, I mean, the ones I'm looking out for on terms of that, like what's on the horizon, we can't see. West Side Story is obviously there, but, you know, it's a remake of a Best Picture winner. It's complications there. But um, Don't Look Up, the Adam McKay movie, which now has yeah. a proper uh, teaser at Adam McKay has uh, twice kind of rushed into an Oscar season at the last minute with Big Short and then Vice. Um, so we'll see how that one stacks up. And then House of Gucci. I think we kind of like, yeah. are, we have, we're so excited for House of Gucci and yet no one's seen it. So it's just, we kind of keep forgetting about it, but it does feel like, you know, I think the last duel got somewhat mixed response at Venice. Yeah. Um, none of us have seen it, but I, I still feel like that one's really looming on the horizon. If it's a Lady Gaga versus Kristen Stewart best actress race, like what further gifts could we ask for? <laughs> you also have the Ridley Scott's never won best director thing. Yeah, he's never uh, won an Oscar. He has zero Oscars. Right, he's no no Oscars because he didn't get one for Gladiator winning Best Picture. And, um, you know, he has two movies out, one of which has been sort of, you know, mildly received, the other, who knows, but it's certainly very anticipated. So that could absolutely be a narrative. Uh, but is that more of a director narrative than picture? Who knows? Yeah. Um, Richard, you mentioned musicals in contention. I do feel we need to discuss Dear Evan Hansen, um, which you did oh, review out of Toronto. <laughs> um, you... <laughs> somewhat unfairly uh, have become notorious among us as like being the Dear Evan Hansen hater when like you are one of uh, many people with criticisms of the show. Um, And then you reviewed the movie. And I mean, honestly, like I didn't feel like you really went into it with knives out. And I think a lot of people have been like, well, it's, that's the show. So if you had a problem with the show, you would have a problem with the movie. In addition to, I think the much discussed um, casting of Plot as a teenager. Um, But so how did it live up to um, what might've been your lowered expectations for the movie? Yeah, I mean, I really, really do try, and I this it's like the core tenet of of my work. I really try not to go into anything knives out. You know, like I had my problems with the show, but I'm willing to give the movie the benefit of the doubt. And and I think that there is stuff in there in in Dear Evan Hansen that is that's worth it. You know, that like I think there are great performances. Um, Caitlin Deaver is so good. I had no idea she could sing like that. Amanda Stenberg can sing beautifully. You know, even Julianne Moore singing the big 11 o'clock number that won Rachel Bay Jones on Broadway at Tony, um, but was not, I guess, in the, for some reason, not in the movie. Even she, Julianne Moore, you know, kind of pulled it out. So so there there are positives to it. I just think that the two big problems with Dear Evan Hansen are, uh, yes, that Ben Platt is well, too old for the role and kind of looks it. I mean, there are a bunch of 20-somethings in the movie, but he just, he just looks older. I mean, they, they're trying to cover up a 5 o'clock shadow via makeup or CGI, I don't know. Um, and it just kind of doesn't work, and you you wonder what how much more powerful it would have been had it been a you know someone closer to that to a teenage 
to you know time period like if if it, the, the the emotion would have registered more rather than kind of sitting there and being like and now it's turn time for Ben Platt to sing this not mm. Evan Hansen um and then the other problem, the bigger problem, is that I think that there are some really foundational flaws in that show in terms of how it deals with this incredibly harmful lie that the lead character uh, tells people. And, um, you know, it's okay to have a lead character who does something bad and shifty. In fact, that can often be more interesting. I just think that the, the, the property doesn't really understand how to negotiate the consequences, um, and in particular, that Evan Hansen embarks on a relationship with a girl whose brother has died by suicide, and Evan pretends that they knew each other as good friends, even though they didn't, and uh, tells the sister, uh, played by Caitlin Deaver, that the brother actually don't really you know, wanted to be close to her, which was not true. He's fabricating all of this. And then they enter into a relationship, which I think dredges up a huge, huge, huge pertinent question of consent. And the stage show and now the movie really don't do anything to interrogate that. In fact, they kind of soften it by having this, the character, the, the Caitlin Deaver part, kind of not that mad at him and then very forgiving of him uh, mm. in a way that I think uh, does not send a good message to the many young people who will see this and will probably otherwise love it. Sometimes, some well, I mean, we'll see because I think I have seen the narrative sort of moving a little bit, the needle moving on Dear Evan Hansen. Um, but, but, you know, something I'll say is that to be really, really fair, um, which is, again, something we always strive to do when we come to, to movies like this, is like the substantive critique goes hand in hand with this, you know, social media friendly, easy punchline critique of Ben Platt not looking right for this role on film in that I, you know, some of the commentary I've seen is that the story of Evan goes down a little bit easier if you can think of him as a young kid who's just gotten in over his head and messed up. If you can, if you can chalk a lot of this terrible uh, situation that he's created up to his youth. But when you put someone who does not look young, um, Ben Platt's still a very young man, but not this young uh, into the role that helps underscore the diciness of of the plot that was already there in the first place. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It it definitely does. And I, I you're I think you're very you're very right. I, I I really wish that that THR thing with like the age down Ben Platt. Did you see that that Yeah thing? I did. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I mean I don't want it to them to have done that, but I do wish that a younger kid and I'm not saying that not not because I'm like so dying to like forgive the flaws of Dear Evan Hansen, but I just think it would play a bit more potently if it wasn't, if it really felt that much realer, I guess. Um, well, one of the other big titles, uh, kind of one of the few true TIFF exclusives from a major studio was um, uh, The Eyes of Sammy Faye, which is a Searchlight release. It's out later this month. Uh, it was kind of Jessica Chastain's passion project. She's playing Tammy Faye Baker. Andrew Garfield is playing Jim Baker. Um, Tammy Faye Baker is also this like enormously larger than life character. And, um, you know, she's got the makeup and the hair and all this stuff. But I, I found more to it. I'm playing more to her performance than to the movie itself uh, than kind of like this big showy piece. Uh, How do you feel about it, Richard? Yeah, I think we were talking last week about uh, Will Smith and King Richard and how it's a huge performance, but also the movie kind of rises to meet him. You know, it supports him. I think in the eyes of Tammy Faye's case, Chastain feels a bit more out on her own, you know, 
but I think she's really good in it. Uh, I know that there will be detractors who think she's doing too much, and it's always oh, just a wig and some prosthetics and a weird voice, and you know what else is she doing? But I think she finds real nuance there and depth there. And I wrote something about Chastain in that movie and another film here called The Forgiven um, about you know she's just having a good year, uh, ten years after her first big breakout year. Is that in Tammy Faye? She you know. There is this kind of at root of that person, this kind of incredible kind of almost dangerous compassion. You know, she's a very trusting person and who knows how much she knew about what her husband Jim Baker was doing vis-a-vis fraud and other things. Um, but in in playing that compassion, I think Chastain finds real compassion for the person. And um, that cannot be achieved just through an accent and you know, tons of prosthetic and wig work. Um, you have to actually think about your performance, and I think she really does. I think it works. I wish the rest of the movie kind of knew a little bit better what its tone was going to be. It's directed by mm. Michael Showalter, and I think sometimes it's like, are we a comedy? Are we a drama? What are we? Um, whereas I think Chastain knows what she's playing the whole way through. Yeah, I think there is a real, not a huge disconnect between her and the movie around her, but like, the story of the bakers is kind of convoluted and like the the notion of the prosperity gospel where they get all these people to give money to them as part of them getting into heaven. It gets strange, but it's really common. And I think you need to kind of grapple with that to figure out like how these people's brains work. And it has to kind of gloss over that to just kind of get further into the narrative. And I think Andrew Garfield's doing good work too. Like I think you, in a similar way, you kind of see what is making Jim Baker make these, you know, mistake after mistake. Um, but the like there's kind of not a structure around them that makes all those character traits add up to a story. Yeah, that's a. I, I was watching a an, an older biopic, so so nothing from this season. But I was watching one this weekend, and I was like, "This is just a movie where things that happened happen." And that's how I feel <laughs> about like biopics that yeah. aren't like don't feel like a real movie. It's just a series of scenes where I'm like, "Yes, and that happened, and then that uh-huh. happened, and then this famous person was there," and you're like, "Okay, I don't know. This is not." adding up to anything. But I did want to ask you about Andrew Garfield because I, to return really quickly to Tick, Tick, Boom, I'm hearing such good things about that. Um, I know I already have it on my post that Will Smith's going to win Best Actor, but like my question about this Jim Baker performance is like, do you think this would help or hurt an Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom uh, campaign? I don't know. I was not as enthused by Garfield in this. Uh, it, it, there are moments when it reminded me too much of his work uh, in Angels of America on, uh, on stage, which I really didn't like. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that it can't hurt. We see, we're seeing a lot of these kind of double acts this year. I mean, I guess that happens a lot, but like there are a lot of people like who have like this thing and then this other maybe better, bigger thing, but the smaller thing will help them, you know, momentum wise for the, you know, like the way that we could theorize that Ad Astra helped Brad Pitt win the Oscar for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't think that this will hurt Garfield. I guess my bigger question about this movie is who's going to see it? I know that like awards voters will see it out of, you know, sort of like, well, is, is that big performance from Jessica Chastain worth it, you know? Um, but I don't know if it has an audience. And I think beyond that, and I think part of that, you know, is that it doesn't really, it's not a faith-based movie, certainly, but is it a movie for entirely secular people who maybe don't know who this is? Like, I, I don't really know. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, just as kind of confused as the movie ultimately feels about it, what it is, I think audiences might be as well. And and I guess we just have to see again this year and I'll just I'll be listening to you guys talk about again this year is like does that matter this year because in years past yeah. I would say yes but like last year Anthony Hopkins winning for The Father which is a film that I really think a lot of like moviegoers, you know, didn't see, but voters did. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah. like, um, you know, if enough voters watch this movie and this isn't a year where like everyone going back to the movies 
um, is part of the narrative. And if it is, you know, that further underlines the case for something like West Side Story. If West Side Story feels like that big, everyone back in the theater moment that uh, the industry keeps waiting for, you know. I mean, I think a nomination for Jessica Chastain for this would be perfectly valid and earned. Um, and I'm like, are more people going to see Spencer? Maybe? I don't know. It's, it's, they both kind of feel like something that like audiences could or could oh. not tune into ever. Oh, I think absolutely more people are, I mean, no offense to the eyes of Tammy Faye, which I think a lot of people should see, but like, um, the combination of Kristen Stewart and for instance, Diana, yeah, that's, I guess I'm underestimating a, the Diana. I just, Spencer yeah. seems like a much, I haven't seen Spencer, but it feels like a much more alienating movie, like something that people might walk out of being like, what the fuck was that? Um, no, I think they'll see it and then go like, oh, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but they'll <laughs> but, still but see you, it. You get their tickets. <laughs> yeah, you know. But they'll still see it, and I, without spoiling anything, I think the way the film ends... Kristen Stewart will, will it's, with the way Spencer ends, Kristen Stewart will be resonating in people's heads, even if they don't, didn't like connect to the rest of the movie. Hmm. All right. Uh, what a once tease. again, another Love week it. of me being excited to see Spencer. Um, I want to shout out a couple smaller things that I saw on the digital platform that I really liked. Um, and Richard, did, did you see Petite Maman, the Celine Siama movie? At, I keep at missing it and everyone okay. loves it, but yeah. It's lovely. It's 70 minutes long. It's um, like low key, but very emotional. It's got these, uh, you, we all know my feelings on child actors, but there's two sisters who are kind of the main characters. Um, and they're so real and just seem to be like playing on camera. And I hope they are great in this movie and then go back to their normal lives, as is my hope for every child actor. Um, <laughs> it's a neon film. I don't know if it's going to be this year, but it's out there. Um, and then there were two HBO docs that I saw that are in the festival, and I think will only be on HBO, so not theatrical releases, but the Alanis Morissette uh, documentary Jagged, about Jagged Little Pill. Uh, Joanna, I, I'm just going to correctly, I'm just going to guess that you had strong feelings about Jagged Little Pill in the 90s. Did I, have I not told you that I'm going to a Jagged Little Pill reunion, like, concert thing that she's doing next month? Uh, I'm extremely jealous. <laughs> it's like, uh. it's Alanis and... Liz Fair and Garbage. So oh the dream of the uh, 90s. Shirley Manson is one of the talking head interviews in Jagged. Yeah. So, I mean, provided that concerts are happening, um, I will, that will be my first concert in a couple of years. Is that, um, anyway, uh, sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm really, um, can I just, uh, yeah. can I interject that Shirley Manson is the last, um, female celebrity I pretended to have a crush on before he came out? <laughs> <laughs> What a place that of honor. Like, well, she looks great. So well chosen. She's a uh, very good. I still good have a crush on her. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, yeah. very valid. Um, but so it's a documentary about Doug Little Pill, um, which I think, you know, I saw some like less inspiring documentaries at this festival, but it's so targeted. It's so like, you know, kind of about like what made this girl so angry to write that album about her like Canadian teen pop years. And it has a lot of her like videos that she took on the road, on the tour and interviews, like all the members of the band she played with, including Taylor Hawkins, who then immediately became the drummer for the Foo Fighters. Um, and I just loved it. I was so happy to watch it. Um, and then another music documentary also from HBO is listening to Kenny G, which is a, uh, a documentary about Kenny G that features a lot of interviews with him. Did you know that Kenny G was one of the first 10 investors in Starbucks? So he has sold 75 million albums and is also absurdly wealthy, completely independently. Of that. <laughs> I, I thought that was a fun. I kind of like, I like that for him. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it will, it will make you kind of like appreciate what Kenny G does and then also be like, Dude, like you gotta be a little less proud of yourself. I don't know. It was oh, a it was a okay. very worthy watch for that. It's, yeah, it's definitely not being like Kenny G, American hero, and I don't think it's trying to be that. But it's got all these interviews with him that I feel like his are 
I feel like you get good insight into his personality for both good and for bad. So both are worth watching. I was just thinking like, you know, he was just such a punchline growing up that I'm like, maybe we could just have a moment where like, what what did Kenny G ever do to really hurt us? Well, there's definitely a tone of that. And they have all these great interviews with music critics where they're like forcing themselves to listen to it. And a lot of them are just like, I don't know, man, nothing. And then one of them, I think he's like a professor of music at Bard. He's just like, what's wrong with this? There's nothing wrong with this. And you kind of, you appreciate that someone could get, could get there. Uh, Any final titles you want to mention, Richard? Well, I want to, again, reiterate, Drive My Car, though it is three hours and about grief and Chekhov, is well worth it. I hope people will make time for it whenever it's uh, playing near them. Um, It's a beautiful story based on a Marokami short story um, about a theater director and actor kind of trying to get over a loss and uh, being chauffeured around by someone who is also trying to do that. And um, it unfolds very gently, but um, it has a real emotional impact at the end that really made me, uh, among other things, want to go back to the theater. So that, and then I watched on the streaming uh, platform, I watched um, Terrence Davies' new film, Benediction, which is about uh, the poet uh, Siegfried Sassoon, who was a British poet um, who had some renown, but kind of felt he died in obscurity and now is getting kind of a, a like a rethink um, traumatized by World War One, also traumatized by the fact that he was living in England uh, in the early last of the 20th, 20th century and was gay. Um, and uh, so it's uh, Jack Loudon plays him as a young man. Um, Peter Capaldi is an older man. And if you have ever had the itch to watch a bunch of, I'm assuming, actors who a couple years ago were, you know, running around Oxford in theater clubs playing bitchy, you know, uh, <laughs> Roaring 20s Brits. Uh, This is the movie for you. (laughs) There's a lot of that. Uh, And it's it's fun and also incredibly um, poignant uh, at the end. So, yeah, Benediction. I don't know if it's out this year, but. uh, That's one. I think it might not have distribution, um, but I'm sorry that I missed it on the platform. Maybe I can still see it. I got to go find out. Peter Capaldi and Jack Loudon, I'm like having trouble. It it doesn't really track. (laughs) (laughs) The movie is mostly Loudon, um, and I couldn't stop. When I was watching it, I was like, he looks like Simon Pegg in a kind of weird way. Like, it's a, um, he, he looks a lot more like Simon Pegg than he does Peter Capaldi. Uh, I've been thinking about that in another movie I haven't seen, The Lost Daughter, where um, Jesse Buckley plays a young Olivia Coleman. And I'm like, I love both of them. I don't totally see that, but you know <laughs> yeah. what? I'm sure it's fine. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, Joanna, it's just you and me now. Um, here to talk about the Emmys, which are happening on Sunday. Uh, they somehow snuck up on me, even though it feels like they've been happening forever. Um, and we've been talking about them a lot. We've talked to some great Emmy contenders. What is the thing that you're watching for for the Emmys, maybe other than Ted Lasso? Taking Ted Lasso's dominance as a given, what else is going on? Or maybe you don't take it as a given. Well, first things first, I just have to shout out like my personal thing that I was championing, which is Seth Meyers winning in this like niche little variety category or, you know, short form category. Uh, he lost carpool karaoke. I think it's a tragedy and I'm, oh, that's I'm not a bummer. I did not know all. that. Yeah. Uh, carpool karaoke won for like the fourth year in a row. And I just like, I'm like, who, who is watching it anyway? Um, congratulations. I, mean, I watched that clip of the Cinderella cast dancing in the cross. Oh, no, that's crosswalk something yeah, else. That's a different, it's different segment. It's different. Um, and then, uh, another thing, another win that happened over the weekend that, that, that makes me feel like people, some people aren't, anyway, I don't want to malign Emmy voters, but like Claire Foy winning for a uh, guest actor in The Crown, 
That was some madness. It was, it was really wild. <laughs> um, because she's in like literally what one flashback scene? I think. Yeah, I mean, and like a like a she gives a speech. That's it. Yeah, and, um, and then it's over. So um, that just felt. I was disappointed that that happened with which with much love and respect to her because I think she's phenomenal and was phenomenal when she was on the show regularly. It just felt like. Um, I don't know, one of those rubber stamping sort of vote voting processes. Anyway, yeah. the Ted Lasso thing, here's what I'll say. I think it's more interesting than I thought it was going to be um, because I think we all sort of presumed that it would just be like this rush to the finish line. And I think it is going to win a bunch of things. But what's been interesting, and we talked a couple weeks ago about the Ted Lasso alleged backlash that we were sort of seeing on Twitter. And, and we we kind of... I think we were a little like, okay, like, you know, when something, when something is very successful, people love to like pick it apart on Twitter. Like what, how much, how much that actually mean, but I actually have seen grumblings from inside the industry as well from people who make television, who are not as high on Ted Lasso, um, you know, are, are just a little flummoxed by how popular it is and how many Emmys it's slated to win, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so I think there's at least a little interesting tension there. Um, I'm not about mad about Ted Lasso winning a bunch of Emmys, but I just think I think it's interesting that like some of that uh, discomfort is coming from inside the house. And I think that comes any time where you have something just dominate so heavily. Um, yeah. You know, with Shit's Creek, at least it was like a farewell tour. But with Ted Lasso, um, I don't know. Anyway, have you been hearing anything further? On, on no, I mean, it, like, it feels like, especially with this last episode that they aired, that I think kind of like reset some of the criticism about how the season wasn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. It feels like some, and you know, that happened after Emmy voting, so not super relevant. Um, and I think the other thing is that, like, you know, everyone loved Hacks, or us included, but I don't know how much steam there is to. It's another freshman show. Like, I don't know. Everyone's gonna be like, no, 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 no you have to give it to that one. Flight Attendant, the same, was really popular, but I just don't see anything that's gonna like swoop in instead. And looking at the on the individual level, you know, we I assume Jason Sudeikis is going to win, and like I still feel pretty personally psyched for Brett Goldstein, who I would assume is still the runaway of that crew. Totally. Are, are do you have any? Are you do you have any emotional phase going into this? Uh, yeah, Brett. I mean, Brett has just been like I don't know. Sometimes you see a, an awards campaign, and you just have to be like that person has put in the work, and that's you know what I mean. Like all of the guys who were nominated in that category for Ted Lasso are worthy, but Brett, who um, is also a writer on the show, um, has really been out there like as an ambassador for the show. And so I, th- I think you know, in addition to a great performance as Roy Kent, etc. Like I think I think that. Um, his work uh, as a show ambassador um, makes me happy for the prospect of him winning. Hannah Waddingham winning for a role that is so up her alley. I remember talking to her a couple years ago. You guys let me do this really wild thing for still wa- the still watching podcast where <laughs> I tried to do a podcast episode about like a, all the Game of Thrones episodes before the final season of Game of Thrones came out. Oh my God. And I didn't yes, manage yes, to make it. Did. I didn't manage to make it all the way through, but I think I did like a countdown of the top 20 and Richard and I just recorded so many uh, episodes and I recorded so many interviews. And one of my interviews was with Hannah Waddingham who played um, Septa Unella, the shame nun, the, the, you know, the like really grubby ring, looking ring, shame ring nun that bell. Uh, on, on Game of Thrones. And I just remember talking to her and she's like, she's like, darling, I'm a fabulous, like, you know, grand dame of theater. She's just like, I love musicals <laughs> and I'm really glamorous and all sorts of stuff like that. And I'm like, it's so, such a shame 
that people don't know this about her. She's so, and, and then I'm like, and then she got this part, which is just exactly her tailor made to her and her particular set of skills, um, where she gets to be fabulous and glamorous and, and, uh, you know, uh, makes them uh, let her sing, I imagine. Um, and it's, uh, you know, yeah, give, give it to Hannah Waddingham. I'm, I'm delighted for her for that. So I, uh, I just Googled shame nun just to see like what people write about her. And there's this MTV news headline that says the shame nun from game of Thrones looks totally different IRL from, it's uh, true. from 2016. And there's just all these like awesome photos of, uh, Hannah Waddingham on the red carpet. She indeed looks amazing. She's a glamour puss. And like, uh, one, one of my favorite, speaking of like campaigning, uh, meta campaigning. One of my favorite power moves that she did is that she got Lena Haiti to do like an in conversation with her FYC event. And I was like, yes, like, cause she told me that she and Lena really bonded when they filmed uh, Thrones. And so I just like love that she called out Lena to be like, come interview me for my Emmy <laughs> run. You know what I mean? Lena, Lena, who should have a stack of Emmys, by the way, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. And the story is all about how she and Juno Temple have become such close friends. And yeah. Juno Temple was on this podcast a little while ago and basically was like, I'm excited to go to the Emmys because I think Hannah Waddingham's going to win. And I was like, wow, that is not something you usually hear someone say like straight up from their co-star who's nominated in the same category. Like it was just such an authentic support that I was so thrilled to get to witness. Where are you on the on the Hamilton question? Because I remember when the nominations first came out, we were like, wow, so much Hamilton. Is Hamilton going to dominate? You, your theory, at least in like the supporting actor limited series is that this, the proliferation of Hamilton nominations meant that like a uh, lovely Evan Peters is going to win. Not yeah. that the, not that the Hamilton actors aren't lovely, but they also have a, a mantle full of awards. And we're um, also, a, I think a strong Evan Peters podcast at this point. We are, we're, we're a pro pro Peters podcast, but, <laughs> um, but, uh, where, what are you feeling on, uh, like, where are you sitting on Hamilton's chances in other categories? I mean, I'm looking through it. I still, like, kind of believe in the vote-splitting theory. Like, you've got Lin-Manuel Miranda and Leslie Odom Jr. nominated together in lead actor. And, like, I feel like that could clear the way for Paul Bettany. Um, and then it's not nominated in the main limited series category because it's eligible as a, oh, God, live variety special? Something else. Um, so I don't know. Like, what if Hamilton wins nothing? I, you know, Catherine Hahn's going to win for WandaVision. Like, it's not going to be Renee Lee Goldsberry as great as she is. So... Is Paul Bettany going to win for WandaVision? Wouldn't that be great? He's so be good on WandaVision. It would be great. I mean, I would be sad for Elizabeth Olsen because, like, there's no way she's winning her category, which is too bad. But, like... Yeah, her um, category is, like, the most famous bloodbath of the yeah, year. Yeah, but she crushed, you know, like, she did so much work. So I would be a little sad if Paul and Catherine walked away with Emmys and she didn't. But... That's true. Hopefully that just feels like a win overall for WandaVision. And, like, uh, as far as the Marvel Disney Plus shows go, like, WandaVision, you know these many months later is still like far and away my favorite thing that they did. Um, and I, I hope that if, you know, Catherine and Paul and maybe other people walk home with Emmys that that will encourage them to do more of that, which I think would be a really good direction to take the whole endeavor in. Well, I know that, um, uh, David Canfield, our colleague is convinced that Queens Gambit is going to walk away with the limited series award because it won so many below the line awards at the creative arts Emmys. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say the exact same thing, um, that David, uh, is saying, which is that, in terms of Elizabeth Olsen's category, I think we had had a question of whether it was Kate or whether it was Anya. And like Kate Winslet for Mary Vistown, Anya Taylor-Joy for Queen's Gambit, real neck and neck uh, race. But I think that Queen's Gambit technical sweep makes me feel like put your money on Anya would be smarter, right? Yeah. Like, that feels smart. So, I mean, I guess, so drama series, I guess, is the thing we haven't discussed yet. Um, 
to me, honestly, I think the story and drama series is, is Michael K. Williams going to win a posthumous Emmy for Lovecraft Country, which he died after Emmy voting had ended. And I don't really think we got to talk about Michael K. Williams on the show uh, when his sudden death was announced last week, which is a shame because he's done such an immense amount of work in television. And so there's this potential for this really cathartic moment for him to win an award for Lovecraft Country or not. And it's kind of almost stressful to contemplate. I think maybe after we built ourselves up so much for Chadwick Boseman to win an Oscar that didn't happen. Are you, are you, am I being overly anxious about this? Uh, should I just let I it happen? I think you should be a little anxious about it just because people who misunderstand the timeline of things will feel maybe like it's disrespectful. But the good news is, is he was already a front runner in that category. Yes, I think so. So he was already sort of a projected winner for a lot of people. So I, I'm hoping that that happens. And there is this moment, Courtney B. Vance won uh, for Lovecraft country in the guest category. A great, that, that win hugely um, deserved. Courtney B. Vance is great in Lovecraft country. And, and he took that moment to like honor Michael Kay and stuff like that. So I think that um, I'm hopeful that it's a, it's a, it's a nice moment uh, for yeah. that. And I wouldn't meet, you know, there'll be an in memoriam, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a separate tribute for him um, during the show just for how fresh and honestly, that loss like, is. I, Lovecraft Country is ups and downs for me, but like Michael K. Williams is was really good. And um, it's another one of his performances about that centers. Well, I guess Omar didn't really at all center on that character's homosexuality, the way that this role did center on this character being in the closet and struggling with his sexuality and, and finding liberation and finding love and all this sort of stuff like that. So I, th- I think it was a really beautiful final role for this great actor who did a lot over his career to challenge our expectations of like what a gay character looks and sounds and acts like on television mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, yeah. And I, I mean, it feels like there are a few big narratives no small narratives, only big narratives. You know what I mean? It's like Jean <laughs> Smart finally getting her Emmy and the crown dominating, Ted Lasso dominating. Um, Netflix finally getting a big uh, Emmy. Yeah. Disney Plus, you know, entering the race substantially, et cetera. So, and then SNL. I mean, SNL, I will say this. <laughs> I got so burnt out on SNL for much of the Trump administration post Trump uh, was sort of the most I enjoyed SNL in a long time. And so I'm, I'm less fatigued than I usually am looking at a bunch of uh, nominations and, and wins for SNL. If that makes yeah. Sense. I mean, Bo and Yang, like what a bright star yes. rising on SNL, like gets nominated, although he has been campaigning for Keenan Thompson, um, as I think plenty of people on SNL are. So yeah, there is for Keenan uh, there, to win. What a star. Yeah, that would, that would be delightful. I mean, that's the like supporting actor comedy series underrated bloodbath there too. Yeah, but I, I just don't think that it's going to be like, I don't think there's going to be any, well, famous last words. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, maybe I'll say this and then cause uh, excitement for you. I don't think there are going to be any major surprises. And then mm. I, I said that just so you'd have a major surprise, Katie. Because we can play that audio. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll keep playing you even when you're gone, just being like, here's how wrong Joanna was. <laughs> eternally wrong doing a Robinson, but I, I don't think there are going to be any major surprises, but I mean, we should remember this. Well, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like the Emmys was like my favorite awards show that happened in the pandemic last year. Yeah. Um, and what is the final 
assessment of how they're going to run things live. Not a ton of information. It's going to be live. They've been doing events like outside. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there will not be everybody there. You know, I think the challenge right now, and there's an article in the Hollywood Reporter about this, it's like people don't want to throw parties because people are in production. And if you get sick, you shut down the whole production and it costs a ton of money. So if you're currently on a set, you have a really strong incentive not to go to an event like this. And I mean, obviously a lot of people are at the Met Gala, so... That's not true for everybody, but I think that will be an interesting thing to watch play out. Um, I was going to say, just to, to put it out there, I, I'm i wondering if The Crown is actually going to win Best Drama Series. I'm like oh. looking at that list and thinking like, The Handmaid's still got a ton of acting nominations. Mandalorian like keeps overperforming. Pose like won its first, you know, uh, other Emmys besides Billy Porter at the Creative Arts Emmys. Like, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just looking for a fabricated um, narrative, but that would be what I would look toward. I love a fabricated narrative. So I love this for you where you're like, this is a real Mike Hogan move. And then, and then sometimes Mike is right. And we're like, Mike, no, it's going to be the thing. And then sometimes he's right. Sometimes Anthony Hopkins wins for the father. So, you know, Anthony Hopkins wins. I mean, we we give Richard all the credit for being right about Anthony Hopkins from the beginning. And then as he always says, he jumped off the bandwagon and Mike was one who was like, guys, I think Anthony Hopkins might win. And we were all like, no. So like classic should, Hogan. And then we should have been Mike made some Emmy <laughs> predictions before, uh, before we let him go. He's right. He's right. Mike has his finger on the pulse. So yeah, it's, um, you know, maybe, maybe, I mean, um, it just feels like a foregone conclusion. And, and I think a, um, a deserved one. Cause this season of the crown was like, it felt like a re reinvigoration of the, of the franchise this season with the mm-hmm. introduction of, of Diana and all the drama that comes with that. So, um, yeah, I, I don't see anyone beating the crown, but, but, um, I look forward to possibly being surprised and delighted watching from home, not work, not writing about oh the Emmys, just watching it. I can't remember the last time I did that. So. I was going to say, I don't know what that's like, but I absolutely do. Cause when I was on maternity leave famously, uh, when you filled in for me in the beginning, I was, I, I came back to work like two weeks after the Emmys. So I was like, not quite insane from having had a baby, but like didn't have to work either. And it was, it was great. No notes. Perfect. <laughs> So now let's hear the interview that I did with Alicia Vikander, who is really excellent in this movie, Blue Bayou, that played at Cannes earlier this year and is out in theaters this week. And she is, you know, famous. She won an Oscar for the Danish Girl. She's a Swedish actress. She has this very, like, European flair. But she plays this woman uh, in New Orleans, kind of a, like, lower middle class woman who is about to have a baby. And her um, husband is, uh, he was an adopted child and from Korea, but finds out that his immigration status is not valid anymore which is a real thing that happens all over the place. And this movie is really heartfelt and kind of has a lot of big feelings to it. Uh, but I think the performances are what really keep it grounded and make it feel really emotionally impactful. And her performance is a huge part of that. So let's hear my conversation with Alicia Vikander. Are you in Lisbon? I saw that you had been living there. Is that where you are now? I'm in Paris. Oh, wow. You are everywhere. Yes. Yes, I'm shooting it at the moment, so yeah, I'll, I'll be here for a few months. Is this your first time back on set in COVID? Yeah. How it is. is it? It's great. Yeah? And it's such a nice one and such a, you know, um, the director and writer I've known for several years and so happy to get to work with him and it's a very nice crew and, um, and I get to be in Paris for a few months, which is really nice. Yeah. What's the project you're working on? It's uh, Olivier Assayas. Uh, he's doing... Um, uh, inspired from his own film, Irma Bep. Uh, we're producing it with A24 and we uh, HBO uh, picked it up. So it's uh, it's a limited 
that are, that, that's uh, going to be out next year. That's really exciting. And the uh, the safety protocols and everything don't feel too strange for being back on a set? Um, no, uh, most people are, I'm getting my second dose of vaccine and then uh, it's, the protocols are pretty worked in by now and it's pretty amazing to see how it kind of flows very well. Um, we only had, uh, one actor, uh, actually that, uh, had to quarantine for two weeks, but apart from that, we've been, yeah, it's been going very well. It's amazing how much people have been able to go back to work and make things seem normal and make art in this time that we need it yeah. more than we did before. Um, so my colleague talked to Justin Chan about Blue Bayou a little while ago before it was at Cannes, and he kind of talked about how he felt um, so confident in your ability to take on this role that is, uh, you know, as far as we know, pretty removed from your own personal experience. So when he came to you with that confidence, how did you feel about it? Did you, did you look at this role and say, yes, this is something I can absolutely do? Yeah, well, it's also one of those things where it is very different from any role that has been, you know, presented to me. And it was a small film, but it was because of that. It was very intrigued to do it. Uh, when I began my career, it was interesting. I was in America and people were like, well, you know, because I had played maybe a maybe royal or a princess or uh, had a bit of a British accent because I uh, lived there for a while. People assumed that I come from like a upper class background and that's not really the case I'm you know more of a working class class background in a a smaller town in in Sweden and even though it's of course America uh, you know it was definitely um, a family story there that I totally could relate to and I love the fact that Justin didn't question that at all and actually the whole crew itself I think we counted the amount of countries we had in front of the camera and behind. Um, and it's not a lot of Americans actually mm. play the parts in the film when you think about it. So I love that it was so multicultural and uh, that he said himself that I, I believe that to understand sometimes Americans, this was his, his words, he was like, sometimes it's even a good thing to kind of have a bit of distance. And mm-hmm. I think that's true with any culture. Yeah. So Justin said that he, he cast you based on seeing your, your film debut in Pure, uh, you know, not any of the more recent work that you've done. What, what did he tell you about that that, um, that really stood out to him that made him want you in this film? I, I think it's what people haven't seen. You know, that film is actually shot around the area where I went to school, where I grew up in the city that I'm from. Uh, and that, he thought, was not far away from the story that he uh, and, and the people that he chooses to tell the story around in this film. So he, it was sweet that he had seen that film because not a lot of people have. Uh, and I maybe f- have felt when I've been abroad, I, I've been both living and working away from Sweden for so many years, but it was interesting that uh, for once it was someone who actually knew a bit more of my background and often I've felt that people have quite a, you know, as you do when you meet people, a very different idea of my my heritage and what I'm from. So when he brings you to Louisiana to make this film, like what is it that you do to to enmesh yourself in a place like that? Because the movie is so lived in, it's so thoroughly of the place where it's set and all yeah. of you feel that way as well. Um well, it's a 
wonderful uh, place to immerse yourself in uh, culture and history and it, it makes it easier uh, to be in a place where people are very friendly, very open. Uh, I met a lot of people who um, kind of introduced me to their hometown and to their city. Um, the music, obviously, uh, is a big part of um, its character and the food. So the fact that it was such a joy being out and explore made you get introduced to, to that city and the people uh, in a very wonderful way. And you're in New Orleans, but not in the part of New Orleans that most people would go to when they visit. So it's like, uh, it's not a different city, but it's a completely different facet. Well, we, we did shoot some of it yeah. in New Orleans. And then, of course, um, uh, we we lived there. But yes, then we, we got the chance. I mean, the areas where we shot most of the film are, are not very far uh, out from the city at all. I think it was maximum like 30-minute drive at most. So, yeah. And you get to venture into a, a part of the world that's... Uh you know, off the beaten path in a way compared to if you were just going there for like a weekend trip or something. That's one of my favorite things about filmmaking, Yeah, I think. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the characters, um, hair and costumes, which, you know, you're not, you have some control over, but it's a whole department doing that. But her hair especially, it's messy and realistic, but it's still very pretty. Like she's very put together, but in this level that like, you know, she has to do all of her hair herself. So she does her best. It just, where, how did that come to be? Like, how did the look of this character come about? I talked about early on that I wanted to have um, that I wanted her to have be partly blonde. Um, uh, I think that Kath and and it's interesting that you say that you you know that you noticed about the hair because it's kind of what I wanted it to be. So that's good. I want I wanted it to show that she likes taking care of herself and that she you know and it's quite a messy hair. So it's kind of wild a lot of the times when she doesn't have the time, but she's clearly, uh, you know, put thought into it and, 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 and want to look pretty. When you step into a film that's this small, you know, it's, a, it's such an intimate story, it's a small budget film, like it's made on this low scale, do you feel like you bring more of yourself into it? Do you feel like you're kind of, is there, does it ask something of you more so than a, a larger production that you've done? I think I tend to want to bring as much of myself in any project that I take on, but I do love filmmaking and filmmaking on a very small scale becomes only that. <laughs> what I mean by that is that uh, if you get a bigger budget, it's a lot more people and a lot of things that, you know, can go wrong that can't go wrong. Uh, it's uh, when you have a small budget, you kind of have to sometimes wing things. Um, you uh, have a very small group of people uh, that come together, but uh, with a group that clearly wants to do this and believes and loves this project. It's, it becomes very intimate. You become a very close group of people that try to make things against a lot of odds. <laughs> uh, and that brings uh, uh, a very powerful and beautiful vibe. Um, and the fact that you change costume in a 
bathroom somewhere in a gas station and then you go out and you shoot and then you see light somewhere and you run with a camera and two camera crew and you shoot something out I, I, I love that thing of it being a bit of a guerrilla filmmaking in a way yeah, there's this scene that I think is entirely silent where the whole family is kind of standing under this bridge and it's sunset or magic hour. Like, there's such a a realness to that. And that's when you said, you know, you're running and chasing after something with the camera. That, that's that, what I, I imagined. I think that, that was what, what happened. You know, it was literally like Justin, um, uh, the little girl who plays our, or my daughter, uh, and, and the camera man guy who's like, oh, we can't miss this. You know, we just ran towards the, <laughs> towards the light. Yeah. Does that help when you have, you're building a relationship with a child on screen? Because I think kids, you know, there's some amazing child actors out there, but they don't handle a work day on a set the same way that grownups do. Does that does that intimacy on the set help that relationship flourish that we can see on screen? I think it's very important if you work with children to, um, you know, make sure in every way that they uh, feel comfortable, that they uh, enjoy what they're doing. And I think the only way for you for that to happen and, and for them to be able to give us good uh, performances as possible is to really get to know them. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to come out early uh, to New Orleans and spend time there uh, was to have time with her. Um, because also with this film, having that realism to it, that kind of family dynamic you need to discover and feel. I don't think it can be forced. Um, so uh, we had a lot of fun uh, playing and um, getting to know one another, and especially because it's handling um, a lot of um, quite tough um, um, subjects uh, in this film. I think it's even more important uh, to really create a bond before you try and get into those scenes and also talk and discuss uh, about what we're making and, mm -hmm. and, and really have her being part of that discussion. Mm -hmm. So it's important to you that, you know, the, the larger scale of the story about, you know, this immigration status for these children who were brought to America as adoptees, like it was important that even she kind of understand some detail of that about what the stakes of the story were for, for this family. Totally. And in one way, it's a story about children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so um, th that was definitely something uh, we did. I don't want to give away the you know where the story goes, but there's a, a lot of intensely emotional scenes, and then the very end of the movie is very super intensely emotional. The whole family is there, and you guys are all there. Do you do you do something to kind of build up to that as a as a family unit on screen to kind of make make the emotions of a scene like that come across properly? We shot that scene right in the end, uh, so by that point we had a quite close relationship uh, naturally between us. So it was very easy to kind of just rely on that and not have to come into that scene with too much thought or intention uh, and, and instead just be in the moment and, and, and let it play out what feels um, the most natural. Has your approach to that level of intense emotion on screen changed over the course of your acting career? Like, have you learned anything either to to bring more of yourself to it or to be able to walk away from it when you get out of it? Do you, do you feel like you get better at it? the longer that you act? Yeah, I, I think in general in life, I think a lot of us try and not show being extremely vulnerable. 
if it is crying or, 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 or letting yourself go or losing control. Um, so it is like therapy when you get to do that on screen sometimes because I can sometimes realize when I'm in a very high, in, highly intensely scene that, oh my God, I, I, I now go places that I haven't let myself do in real life in, in a very long time. Do you feel like you can walk away from it when you're done with something like that, or does it does it linger with you? It's interesting. I mean, especially when it comes to if if you ever cry in a scene, I don't know. I I can't fake cry. I don't know what that is. <laughs> and it's kind of like, and several takes, it doesn't happen. But then it can happen, and then it's a very physical thing. Mm-hmm. It's that feeling you have in the back of your throat. And and when someone says cut, mm-hmm. it's not like that just goes away in a heartbeat. Uh, it's kind of like a physical reaction that is still ongoing in your body and is being released. So uh, it, it physically it takes a bit <laughs> then to kind of get back or yeah. to, to calm down. Um, but then I think... Every actor is very different, but I think I'm the kind of person who... I love going very deep with my character on set. Uh, but then the joy is that I can try and let that go and and go back and being me mm-hmm. <laughs> afterwards. But then, of course, it touches you somewhere. Um, and, and, and it will be something that you felt for a moment. Uh, so then it obviously felt true. But then... I like uh, going back home and, and try and <laughs> and get some energy back again, I guess, <laughs> yeah. for, for when it's time to go to set uh, the day after. Yeah. I was reading back to your um, your 2016 cover story that you did with us at Vanity Fair where so many of your colleagues and former colleagues had talked about that intensity that you go into it with, about this kind of like like tearing into a part and burrowing down <laughs> deep in it. Does that still feel like the case for you? Has, it, has that changed in the, in the last five years? No, I, I, I think... I, 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 it's like I opened the floodgate when I finally get on set. No, but I, I, I think I, I love the preparation work. I love um, letting the imagination just like flourish whilst reading a script or thinking about what character I want to do. Um, and then it's always a bit nerve wracking releasing that on set and showing everyone what you've been uh, having in your head for so long um but um uh yeah to, to kind of keep sane and not get maybe not get too tired mm-hmm. then i need to try and let, let that go when i when i leave set uh to be able to go that deep the day after again yeah well we were saying that you're back on set now for the first time since covid so when you're not working on set do you miss that release like what do you what do you do to recapture that uh that kind of energy. yeah I mean um this has obviously been such a tough year for so many people around the world but for me it made me not work for a year which hasn't happened uh in well my entire career and in one way that uh break made me be able to kind of stop and really reflect over why I love doing this and and make me miss it and it's been wonderful watching a lot of movies and TV series and, 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 and then really crave uh, to get back on set. Uh, and now I'm, I'm, I'm 
yeah, I've had a, a long day today and I've been surrounded by, with some incredible talent and actors and uh, uh, it, it's nothing better than, yeah. than, than doing this. It's, uh, it's a job that reinvents itself and becomes new uh, uh, for each day, which makes it um, so alive and, and, and giving. What did you watch in quarantine that made you uh, eager to get back on set? I think I, I went back and watched a lot of classics, like films that I haven't seen in a long time, but that are really good. You know, I realized it's a lot of films I saw maybe in my teens, but mm-hmm. that I haven't seen since. Uh, a lot of films from like the 30s and 40s. Oh, and, like hardcore classics. Uh, yeah. Everything from I watch a lot of uh, Ingrid Bergman's films. I went back and like um, that was a theme I had. It was a lot of themes, mm. um, uh, but Lancaster ended up being a theme too. He's got <laughs> some. A lot of that. He's got some good stuff. <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of what we ended up doing. We've been like a film club, uh, trying to go through you know movies and different themes. Uh, watched a lot of Hitchcock's as well. Um, does Ingrid Bergman loom large for you just as a Swedish actress? Like, is that something that you kind of just grow up, like, looking toward? Of course. That was kind of the one, you know, actress, one of the few that was Swedish that made English-speaking movies that I yeah. knew of. Uh, and her story, I actually uh, um, voiced a documentary about her uh, a few years back. Um, uh, I felt it was... A, real privilege because uh it was so intriguing to get to know her story mm-hmm. and uh the family let me read a lot of her diaries uh and notes that's incredible personal notes uh and that was pretty incredible and to know what story i mean how she ended up in america i mean it's quite controversial in and when she left she left her husband and like one year old child and bought a one-way ticket across the Atlantic to go to Hollywood and she said I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna which at that time was obviously quite uh, radical yeah but that was what she had her mind set upon and, and she did it um, I feel like when I've when I've interviewed people who have won Oscars in the past and I think particularly earlier in their careers you know they talk about how a lot of doors open for you but then it's it's like a lot of them are the wrong doors, and it's a lot of people kind of trying to tell you what to do and where to go. And watching your choices just from the outside, like, I see a lot of deliberateness in the choices that you've made in the, you know, six or seven years. Like, how do you how do you feel about that path that you forged for yourself? Do you feel like you're, you followed all the right doors there? Do you feel like you're still uh, able to be as deliberate about about where you go as, as you have been in the last six years or so? I think for every year now... You know, I, I've thought about it a lot the past year and with the job I'm doing now. For me, I I kind of, I, I just, I want to make the films that I really feel like making in the moment. And it can be the role of the script. Mostly, I would say, it involves the people that are connected to it. Uh, I realized I've made like three films now where it's a auteur a writer director that I worked with I I really like that Mm -hmm. that makes you come in and and work with somebody closely very early and it's their own 
material and and uh, it's a very um, collaborative process as well. I like that I, I think less and less about it. It's not a great plan in any way. I love making films. I love it. And um, uh, I want to continue giving myself experiences that pushes me or taking me to new places or surprises me or... Um, and that's... But yeah, that's what I want to continue to do. Well, that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Um, well, I'll be back next week. Uh, I'm here only with Joanna at the end of the show. Joanna, you won't be back next week. So um, I don't know. How, how can people... I'm sure everyone already follows you on Twitter, but just in case, how, how can people follow you in your next exciting moves? Yeah. Well, you can find me on Twitter at JoeRothis. And I also have a website now, which is very weird. Yeah. I believe it's just JoeRothis.com, but... Yeah, JoeRothis.com. So you can find like what's up with me uh, and all the podcasts that I do uh, on that website. Or you can follow me on Twitter at JoeRothis. And I will not be on VF.com, but you should keep reading VF.com, obviously, because all my favorite people are right there. I have a strong feeling that your name will continue popping up in our traffic on VF.com for all the things you've written about that people will like Google when it's airing on AMC and just like would be reading your old stories. So um, I, I look forward to seeing your legacy continue for many years. The ending of the Green Knight, if they want to understand it. <laughs> Listen, people are going to be baffled by that movie for years. So you have done great uh, forward-looking work. Oh, fantastic. And I also, I, I, I do have a piece going up about impeachment next week. So you will at least find my byline uh, for one more week after this. Well, in the meantime, you can find uh, the the legacy of Joanna Robinson and everybody else at VanityFair.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Little Gold Men. Uh, I am at Katie Rich. You know where to find Joanna. You know where to find everybody else. Um, and you can text with us uh, about things other than us forgetting Mona Lisa's smile, although thank you to everyone who texts us about it. Uh, go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7169. Can I give a little postscript? Yeah. You know how um, when they finish a show, like like the production staff's holding a sign that says thank you? Aww. Yeah. That's me right now. The production staff was saying thank you, Joanna. We wish you well on your journey to your next chapter. Brett, thank you. You're the best. It's been a lot of fun. And this week's award for the way that we will remember Joanna Robinson forever goes to Joanna Robinson. I love musicals and I'm really glamorous. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs> 